Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out. Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 2 today. And if you received a core guide, you can get that out. This is our kind of our discipleship piece. There's a place in the front for you to take notes and uh, jot down things that you might want to chat with your core groups about. Uh, pop, pop quiz <clears throat> to the scouts in the room. What is the scout slogan? Slogan. Slogan. Do a good turn daily. That's it. There's a motto, there's a slogan, there's an oath, there's all sorts of things. I think we're going to have some remedial work on Thursday night. (laughs) I was reading about a scout troop in New Jersey, Troop 368. And this is a story that goes back to 2014. They were getting ready for, I believe, a high adventure, and so they had to do some practice hikes, much like our Troop 300 does here. Um, and they were at Harriman State Park uh, in New York. And Art's been there. He knows where that is. There's some good hiking there. I think 200 miles of trails or so there. And they were out hiking, and they came around this bend to an intersection in the trail, and there was this woman who was kind of just tr- sitting uh, balanced on a rock, and she had, she had her leg out in front of her, and she didn't look like she was doing really well. And, and uh, one of the scouts said, hey, are you doing okay? And she said, no, I, I, think, I, I think I might have broken my ankle. Well, you know, when you tell a group of scouts you might have broken your ankle. They were well-trained. And that's one thing that is, you know, just fantastic about the scouting program is the focus on first aid and helping people uh, who need it. And so some of those boys, they just, you know, they went off into the woods and they came back and they made this perfect splint and, you know, wrapped it up. And their scoutmaster is a a firefighter EMT professionally, and so he inspected their work. He said it was textbook. Um, but there's another problem. I mean, she's way out in the wilderness with a broken ankle that's now perfectly splinted, but she can't put any weight on it. So she tried to stand up and just couldn't do it. So immediately, the scouts ran off into the woods again, and they came back with a stretcher that they made out of some logs and some sticks and they tied a tarp to it and one of them tested it out to make sure that it would hold their weight and they uh, put it down and helped this lady, who by the way is NBC's Ann Curry, uh, that the boys didn't know but the scoutmaster did. He recognized who she was. Um, so she wrote a letter to each of the boys and you know it, it hit the news and so that's probably why I had access to the story but it, it their training had kicked in into a real-life situation. And so they were, they were out in the wilderness, and they got to do their good turn on that day. Well, I want to read a story to you this morning in the Bible about a group of guys who had a friend who was uh, paralyzed, and they got to do their good turn on that day, and it inspired two more. So if you'd stand with me, We're in the Gospel of Mark, 
chapter 2, and I'd like to read the first 12 verses. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. <clears throat> well, so far in the Gospel of Mark, we've witnessed Jesus' popularity growing. Uh, he has gone around and he has been casting out demons, he's been healing diseases, he's been teaching the people. And the people recognize this is, we haven't heard this kind of meat before. He's teaching with an authority that we don't know where it comes from. <clears throat> so with all of these things, wherever Jesus goes, the people hear about it and they, they start, they come out of the woodwork and they, they gather this crowd around him so that it's really difficult for Jesus even to go into some of the towns because they're, they're just full and waiting. And so Jesus has to practice his ministry out on the, the margins of, of town. It's a good metaphor when we think about how do we um, do ministry in the church. Maybe it should be in the margins where Jesus spent all of his time. Well, the crowds were just gathering, and his pop this is like celebrity Jesus. People just flocked to him. And <clears throat> when we get to Mark chapter 2, we start to run into a little bit of opposition. Mark has showed us how his popularity quickly increased. But then we get to this, this part of the gospel in chapter 2 all the way through chapter 3 and verse 6, which ends with um, the religious leaders looking for a way to kill Jesus. There are five different controversy stories between uh, chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 6. And so Mark has carefully laid out this, this increase in you know, popularity but then he gets to there and he says, but it wasn't all good. 
the religious leaders started to pick up on some of the things that Jesus was saying, and, and he, was, he was doing things that, um, well, in their minds, were just out of line. So we get these controversy stories at the beginning of, of chapter 2. Uh, and as we enter the story today, Jesus is preaching the word in a house. He's at home. Now, I think the majority of scholars would say that he's probably at Peter's house. But there are, there's a group of scholars that think that, well, it could even be Jesus' house because he did move from, from Nazareth to Capernaum and was there for a while before he started his ministry. So it could be Peter's house. It, this could be very, Jesus' very own home that he's, that he's preaching in at this point. Um, but can you imagine the scene that we just read? Small place, you know, probably 50 people or so max. When you look at the archaeological studies, you know, the roof span might have been up to 18 feet. And so there's you know, 50 people jam-packed into a room, and Jesus is trying to preach to them. And, and then it says they were even crowded outside the door. So there's people, you know, hey, you know, how do we, you know, we can't fit in there, but we want to we wanna hear what he's saying. We want to see what he is He's doing in there, and Jesus is in there, and he's probably, he's probably riffing on his, his uh, favorite sermon, which is, the time is now. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. That's the sermon we've heard so far in Mark. He's given them the straight-up gospel, the good news that God is there doing something new, and every one of them can take part in it. Well, then... Mark tells us about this bunch of scouts that shows up, and they have a friend who is paralyzed. So they rigged up a stretcher, and they brought him to see Jesus. Hey, we've heard, we've heard the rumors. We know the celebrity is out there. This man, Jesus, just might be able to heal our friend. So they put him on a stretcher. They take him uh, to the house. Uh, they want to do their good turn for the day. And uh, the problem is, the problem is they can't get in. The door is blocked. There's too many church people that are blocking access to Jesus. And so, you know, they come up and, and this is how maybe I picture it in my mind. Your picture might be a little bit different, but <clears throat> if I'm a, a group of guys, a group of scouts, and, and I see that there's a one way that's barricaded, you know, I'm first going to ask, hey, can, can, can you scooch over just a little bit? Uh, we, we, need to, we need to get our friend through to see Jesus because we hear that he might be able to heal him. And, I, you know, in my mind, I see a bunch of church folks, they scowl at him like, well, you should have got here earlier to get the good seats. You knew what, you knew what time church was going to be. And they say, well, come on. This is, this is our buddy. He's... he's paralyzed. And all they see is their backs. But these scouts are, you know, they're creative problem solvers. And they know about the construction of the day, that the houses typically had a stairway uh, or a ladder going up the side of the house. 
because the roof was a usable place for work. The, the beams would go across from wall to wall, uh, and then the people would cover the beams with uh, other sticks and rushes and, and um, put that down, kind of like a thatch roof kind of a thing. And then they would take um, mud and pack the mud in and let that dry in the hot sun. And, and there could be up to a foot of mud packed on this roof. And so it's usable. It's like a, it's a hard floor. You can, it'll bear your weight. And so they go up, uh, they find the staircase and uh, make their way up and they, they start digging through the roof. And I imagine there's a few people who chase them up there. What are you, what are you doing? You're making a racket downstairs. <clears throat> you know, some of the most embarrassing things that I've ever heard come out of people's minds happened in a church. Um, I, there's one place. It's not here. Don't worry. Something like this would never happen here. But other places that you may have visited. Um, we were having a revival service. The place was packed. And so we were in there. The service is like, the countdown was going. I mean, the kids were saying 10, 9, 8. Uh, and there's this new kid who's just moved to town. A few weeks. Uh, didn't know too many people yet, but there were a few people from youth group that were sitting in the row right in front of me. And so he had found a place right on the end. And well, he didn't realize that somebody's Bible was already in the pew rack right there. And that was their mechanism of saving a seat. So as it's getting down to like zero on the countdown, this person comes over and says, hey, you're in my seat. And his eyes just got huge. And he's like dumbfounded. Like, what? Excuse me? Yeah, you're, you're, you're in my, I was saving the seat and, and you're going to have to move. The place is packed. There's not, there's not another chair that he could see. There's not another place for him to go. And our row was already squished. And I, I don't think I've ever been that angry in church before. I had to go to the altar at the end. <laughs> pray about that one. <clears throat> so we scooched in and, and you made a place for him. But I wonder how often do things like that happen where we crowd people out and if, if they're not um, uh, people who look for creative access for stairways and roofs and other access into what's going on, uh, I wonder how many times we crowd people out, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, by attitudes that we might carry, comments, even if you think they're harmless. Your body language speaks a lot to people who are trying to get in for the healing and forgiveness that Jesus offers. Well, these scouts, they're on the roof, and they're digging away. Can, can, if, if you're inside now, picture it, from, picture it from the inside. You're standing there, Jesus, you know, you're amening Jesus, and, you know, he's going to town, he's got the hanky out and wiping his forehead, and, uh, and you know, you start to get some dust on your shoulder. Like, what, what is that? And you look up, and there's like a, like a crack, and, and you're wondering, what is going on? And you hear a little, you know, 
scratching and clawing, and, and pretty soon there's like a, there's a few places where light from the outside starts to shoot through, and it's casting these weird uh, shadows, and the cats are chasing the light all over the place, and, <clears throat> and pretty soon the, the hole just widens out, and, and you, they, you look up, and you see these uh, giggling, smiling, sweaty faces of these scouts that are up there on the roof. And they look down, <laughs> sorry about your roof. <laughs> Somebody in that church, I know, was wondering if progressive Palestine was going to cover the damage. But, you know, that's another, that's another story. <clears throat> and Jesus looks up. Jesus looks up. And he, the text says he was impressed. I imagine Jesus had a big old grin on his face. And he probably chuckled to himself. That's pretty good. I got to hand it to you guys. I see the packed house. And then they, they start lowering their friend down. And Jesus sees all of this happen right in front of him. Some people are dumbfounded. Some people are whispering to their neighbor, this is not how church should go. There's all sorts of just a buzz in this place. And Jesus looks this guy in the eyes and says, son, your sins are forgiven. Hmm. Hmm. Son, your sins are forgiven. He says this to the paralyzed guy. Now, Mark uses the word paralyzed to describe this man five times in our text. <clears throat> the man is not given a name. We don't know who he is. We just know him by his condition. He's the paralyzed one, the paralyzed man. He doesn't even speak words in the text. So he has no name, and he doesn't get to say anything. See, the paralyzed man in that society would have been viewed as an outcast. He would have been seen as an uh, unclean blemish on society. And so he would have been excluded from full participation in both the community and in the synagogue. And so when you are not allowed to participate in the synagogue, you will never hear the words in your life, your sins are forgiven. The guy can't get to church anywhere because he's paralyzed. And people look down on people who were paralyzed back then. Most people would have taken it even <clears throat> a little bit further. In, in that society, there would have been people in that room, out, in, out on the streets who would pass him by, who would wonder to themselves, and sometimes their wondering to themselves would come out as an outside voice, I wonder who sinned. I wonder what he did. To land in that condition. I wonder if it was his parents. What, what, what sin of his parents is there that he's paralyzed like this? And so, you know, Jesus doesn't approve of that. John writes about it in John chapter 9 when uh, they pass a blind person and the disciples ask Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. That's not good theology. So Jesus has this paralyzed guy on the mat in front of him, and he speaks these words, Son, your sins are forgiven. He called him son. That's a term of, that's a family term, right? That's a, 
term of endearment. Uh, that's a term of love. That's a term of relationship. That's a term of, of community. When's the last time that this person felt like he was really a part of a community, of a, of a family? And this would have, those words, son, your sins are forgiven, would have blown the minds of most people in that room. Where the world sees paralytic, Jesus sees son, beloved one, child. Jesus tells him, your sins are forgiven. Not that, not that his sins will be forgiven in the future after he goes and visits the religious institution and does whatever they ask him to do for purification and um, do the right sacrifice, um, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven now. The story just before Mark chapter 2, chapter 1, verse 40 through 45, Mark gives us this little episode where Jesus heals a leprous person. And when he heals him, Jesus instructs him to go to the synagogue and and do what was commanded in the law of Moses. And what that means is when he goes and purifies himself uh, in the synagogue, then the priest who was there would proclaim God's forgiveness over him, and because he was now clean, no more disease, and that he had gone to the, the synagogue, the priest would then uh, make a statement, you, you are forgiven, and, and then that person would be welcomed back into the full functioning community. In this case, with this paralyzed man, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus bypasses that whole system, and he proclaims forgiveness in this person's life. Well, that's kind of astonishing when you think about it. Nobody, nobody would have imagined Jesus saying anything like this. Well, one, it's not what they were expecting. I mean, up until this point in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus spoke words into people's lives, it was likely that he was healing them. And so the scout troop brings their friend to Jesus, they lower him down through, and they're probably uh, slapping their forehead, Jesus, you did the wrong miracle. It's obvious what we want. We want our friend to walk again. We're training for a 50-miler, and he needs to get ready. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Nobody in that room expected those words out of Jesus' mouth. See, Jesus saw something in this man that the world just doesn't see. They see a condition. They see, uh, you know, they see what ails him, that he is paralyzed. But Jesus, he looks a little bit deeper. The man's greatest need wasn't that he needed a physical healing. He needed a spiritual healing first. Jesus recognized that he had been shoved out to the margins of society. If the man paid any attention to the religious climate at all, he would know that you have to go to the synagogue to be forgiven of, of sins, that people sin. 
And he would have never been able to experience that. And so not only did he have a condition, but in his soul, he had been prisoner and he had been carrying around the weight of his sin because nobody would ever proclaim it forgiven. Jesus sees that. He needs to be released from the bondage of the guilt and the shame that he's been carrying around. Son, your sins are forgiven. It's not freedom from body paralysis that he needed, but he needed freedom from the paralysis that his sin had put upon him. Now the scribes, they're sitting in there, the teachers of the law, and they're about having a fit. I mean, when somebody gets really angry, I call it the, the red light goes on. And you can imagine, you know, just face red, you know, blow your stack. They're that kind of angry right now because Jesus has just blasphemed God. Only God can forgive sin. Only priests could declare it in God's name on the basis of repentance or sacrifice or purification. I mean, this guy didn't even say that he did, did uh, anything wrong. There was no remorse. I mean, there's no sign at all that this guy should be forgiven in their minds. So this is total blasphemy. And they realized that what Jesus just did, if it was legitimate, just rendered their whole system useless. Just rendered what they do. All of the priests in the temple will be in the unemployment line. And you know what? They're 100% correct. They were right to question. Only God can forgive sin which makes Jesus' statement all the more powerful. If only God can forgive sins, then Jesus has just flat out said, I am God. It's Jesus' first divinity claim in the Gospel of Mark, and it started a controversy. The controversy was blasphemy. And when you get through the Gospel of Mark, down into the later chapters, verse uh, chapter 14, in the later part of that chapter, the very final controversy of Jesus' life, the charge is again blasphemy. And blasphemy in their culture is punishable by death. And in the end of the story, we know that that charge stuck in chapter 14, and they crucified him. We know the other side of that story, though that they buried him, and he was raised to new life. You know, the story here today, we've been singing the lyrics all morning. Jesus brings dead things to life. He demonstrated it for us in his own life, and any time that there's disease or paralysis that comes in the presence of Jesus, there's new life that's found. Well, that would have been a good spot for, a, for an amen, but... <clears throat> Maybe next week. <laughs> Jesus could see the anger stirring in their heart. Jesus saw these people's hearts. And he could sense that they're angry and, and upset. And they were right to question. That's their job. They, you know, people have to ask questions when they see something that that may be out of line a little bit. And, and this new person, Jesus, they don't know him well enough yet. And Jesus just proclaimed forgiveness. So it's okay that they ask a question. 
But they're dead wrong because they continually fail to see the new thing, the new reign that God is, has in the person of, of Jesus. They totally miss it. So Jesus asked them, why do you, why do you question? Why, why do you question? And he's not trying to, to condemn them at this point. Jesus is trying to teach them something at this point. It's, it's now time for an object lesson. So he says, which is easier to say, this man's sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now, there's a big difference between saying and doing. So if we're talking about saying words, it's a whole lot easier to say your sins are forgiven, because there's no way to verify that. You don't know if, it's, if it happens or if it doesn't happen. If Jesus says, hey, get up and walk, well, there's verifiable objective data that will tell you if what he said was true or not. If the person stands up and they walk, then that's proof. But if he just lays there, then, you know, that's, that's also proof that now nah, you're just making up a story. So if, if we're just talking about words, it's way easier to say your sins are forgiven. But then Jesus says... Um, he uses something, he uses uh, something that is verifiable uh, to prove the unverifiable. The guy's laying there, and he says, get up and walk. And he does. And we're talking about doing things, forgiving sins, forgiving sins is harder than healing somebody. There were people in the Old Testament that were granted power to heal people, but only God could forgive sin. Sin is much more costly to forgive, which we'll find out later in the story, that it will cost Jesus his very life to extend forgiveness for all of us. See, everywhere Jesus goes... <clears throat> In your core guide, there's a passage from Isaiah chapter 35. I'm not going to read it for you right now. It's a little homework assignment for you. Read through chapter 35 in, in Isaiah, and then match it up alongside the things that you have read and seen and heard about in Mark chapter 1 and, and through chapter 2, uh, verse 12, and just see that that Jesus is fulfilling the very words of healing and restoration and redemption that were spoken way back in the Old Testament. The people recognized it. They praised God and they said, we have never seen anything like this at all. You know, the main, <clears throat> the main message tells us about the person of Jesus, who he is, that he has the authority as God to forgive sins. Mark, in, in this chapter, I think answers or helps answer some questions for us, the questions that confront us in the text. The, the first one is, do you recognize who Jesus really is? And he, he lays it out there for us, and he has this object lesson, and he shows, he demonstrates the authority of, of Jesus, and, and you note the scribes have no response in this one. That Jesus, he's not just a miracle worker. He works miracles, yes. He's not, he heals people, yes, but he's not just a healer. He's a great teacher, but he's not just a teacher. 
He's God in the flesh, God with us, who has the authority and the power to forgive sins. Yours, mine. The second question would be, do you hear and understand the words that Jesus speaks to you? It's easy to read it from a third-party perspective about a nice little story that's, that's in our text this morning. But it's a different thing when it hits the reality of our own life. <clears throat> the words in here are words that Jesus speaks to you, over you, into you. I told you that the paralyzed man did not have a name. He did not speak any words. And I think that was... I think Mark intentionally left out those details so that you could put your own name in there. So that we could envision ourselves as the, as the paralyzed, uh, the, the person who needs a physical healing in some way, a person who is broken, knows that there is sin in our lives, and we don't know what to do about it, and it's paralyzing us. We can imagine ourselves, we can see ourselves as this person lying on that mat, helpless, in front of Jesus. And Jesus says, Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. You see, it's not, it's not your spouse or your kids or your parents, it's not your job or your coworkers or your boss. It's, it's not your insufficient income or lack of resources. It's not all of those things that are your greatest issue. Those, those are all things that present themselves in our windshield, and we look at those and we see them. That's our circumstances. Jesus has the ability to look past our circumstances to our heart. And see how all of those circumstances might be affecting our hearts. And he speaks that word into your life. Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. You're my child. A loved one. You are embraced as part of the family. Maybe you need that forgiveness and healing. Maybe you're labeled by your struggles or a condition and you need Jesus to set you free from that. I just got back from our sister church, the Madre Tierra Church in Apopa, El Salvador. And while I was there, I, I met a young man. He's probably in his early 30s. His name is um, uh, Carlos Emilio. And he has a wife, Cecilia, two daughters, Alison and Emily. Beautiful family. The first evening that we were there, there was an event at the church. And he, he just came right up to me and he said, I need to talk to you. And he spoke English. He learned English. He taught himself English by watching American TV and movies. So I apologize for that. But <clears throat> sharp guy. So, uh, you know, a little bit later in the evening, we had a chance to talk, and, and he told me part of his story. He grew up in a primarily Catholic uh, environment, and he's like, I never, I never really connected. Uh, 
it's just hollow and I think his family was split and, and he fell away from religion as he would explain it for years he said while I was away from religion I did some I did some bad stuff and he was a prisoner to the guilt and the shame and the sin that he knew he was carrying in his life well there's a woman in our sister church down there who knew Carlos and she was praying for him she was like one of the scouts she carried him to Jesus seven years seven years she gently lovingly persistently invited Carlos to come to her church every single day you know how many invitations that is that's 2,555 invitations to come to church you know what we give up after we ask our neighbor or coworker or or somebody you know well they told me no once <laughs> why don't we keep praying for those people why don't we keep carrying people to Jesus after seven years 2,555 invitations Carlos finally said okay he knew something was missing in his life and he came to church and he found the good news of Jesus and gave his heart to Christ he said, but I think that I only gave part of my heart to Jesus. I thought I gave him my whole heart, but I don't think that I did. And so I was, you know, that wrestling match that we all go through in the Christian life. It's not an easy walk. Nobody ever claimed that it was. You know, sometimes we're really good about not being selfish and, you know, surrendering everything to Jesus. Other days we just, you know, want our life to ourselves. And he was going through that stuff too. And he said, uh, I started to have some illness and I went into the doctor and they started doing these tests and they noticed something in my heart. And the doctor was really concerned. He said, I need you to have some more tests. And Carl's like, well, why? He's like, well, I think I might need to go in and operate. Well, that scared Carlos. I was here for something totally different and now you're telling me that there's something with my, with my heart? He had a battery of tests that were done over a period of time, and every time the doctor kept saying, I think I'm going to have to crack you open. <laughs> that was the, his translation. <laughs> he was, wasn't wrong. <laughs> uh, so they have enough intel that he is scheduled to go in for the final battery of tests before they schedule the, the open-heart surgery. And so he's at home I think it was and he said I was just talking to God and I knew I needed his forgiveness I thought that I experienced it and I said God I just give you everything you know if this, if this is my time and I don't make it through this then, then I trust that you're going to figure out a way to care for my family but if I'm around I will give everything, my life, my kids, everything to you. He just felt like God's forgiveness washed over him again. He went in for his tests, 
five, five different tests. I don't remember all the acronyms. Somebody probably knows them. All five, all five were perfectly clear. There was no issue with his heart. Amen. He needed forgiveness first and healing came second. Now, I know you're sitting here just like me. And you say, well, everybody's story doesn't end like that. I know. And I don't, I don't have an explanation for that. Every story doesn't end with a full healing like that. Some of them do. <laughs> Those are the ones we, we praise God for all of them because, one, Jesus knows that our first need is for forgiveness and total surrender first. What happens after that is bonus and blessing. Paul talked about it as to live as Christ, to die as gain. Lord, if you were... If this is my day, then it's going to be a great day because I'll be in your presence. But if you choose to let me be here, I will live as Christ did. I also read a story about a man named Reynolds Price. He's a professor at Duke University, also an acclaimed novelist, and he calls himself a... He, Duke is a, a Methodist school, so he says, but I wasn't really a follower. I was kind of a part-time Protestant. And that's how he labeled him, his faith. And <clears throat> he figured out that he had an eight-inch tumor wrapped around his spine, causing a lot of pain. Not much they could do about it. So he did that whole bargain with God thing. Hey, God, would you just take this away? He's like, I, I even, I dusted off my Bible and opened it up. I started reading and I prayed a little bit and... I had this vision one day. Jesus and I were out at the Sea of Galilee. We were already in the water. And the vision that I had was Jesus was, was cupping the water and he was releasing it over my head. Over and over again. And that water was washing down over the scar from, from my surgery. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus started walking away. He said, you know, I called out to him in my vision. Basically, the loose translation is, well, that's not really what I wanted, Jesus. Is that all? Am I also healed? I don't remember exactly in the vision. It's something like, well, that too. And his cancer did go into remission, but he was confined to a wheelchair. He said, but I was so filled with gratitude. Because I knew that my sickness was not a punishment for something. I knew in that moment that Jesus forgave me. And it provoked me to change my life, even if my condition wasn't fully restored. And when we read these stories like this, these words, they fall on us, and we are to respond in some way. The response really is just opening your heart to Jesus. 
letting him speak those words of forgiveness and, and healing into your life. To let him set you free from whatever it is that's holding you captive. And then the last question that Mark addresses is, do you see a picture of discipleship? He gives us two of them. One of them is the picture where a group of friends gather around an injured brother or sister and they carry him. They do whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus. The other picture paints the opposite picture. They get to Jesus and the door's closed. There's a barricade created by people who are already in. And they were there for a good reason. They were there to hear Jesus, but didn't open up and let somebody from the outside in. And that's a picture I think that we need to wrestle with in our own hearts and minds, in our church, in our community. Are we a people who would go to whatever length is necessary to carry somebody to the feet of Jesus so that they can experience his forgiveness and healing? Or would we be content just doing our own thing and if they meander by, we might wave at them and, hey, you know, you should have got here earlier. I hope and pray that we would be a people who would tear the roof off if we had to, to lower people down to experience the healing of Jesus. People of God said, amen, amen.